Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent conversations we've had on JM in the AM. Our friends at Ketem arranged for Jay Booksbaum to be on with Etty Edry of Carmel and Yartir Wineries and uh, Jürgen Wagner of Cellar de Capsanis from Spain. And we had an interesting conversation about kosher wine. Here is that conversation on JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. At Thursday at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, and NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Well, we get a chance to talk about some kosher wine, KFWE, Kosher Food and Wine Experiences, next week. Many of you know that. And uh, Jay Booksbaum has promised us a couple of very interesting guests for this segment as we take a close look at some of the great kosher wines out there. I don't know how, I don't know who won the lottery. I don't know who, I don't know how these two winemakers, how these two wine representatives won the lottery to join Jay on the air this morning, but they are the ones that we are focusing on today. From the Grapevine brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem. He's the number 1 kosher wine sommelier in the entire world. I in the entire face of planet Earth. The one and the only Jay Booksbaum. Good morning, Jay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good morning. And I know you're joined by a couple of very special guests, so we'll get to in a minute. Um, a lot of people out there, especially in this audience, because you know this audience is very into it, uh, know about the Kosher Food and Wine Experience. It's happening next week. Uh, obviously, KFWE has a website where people can get all the information. It's happening this year in New Jersey as opposed to New York. Is there any tidbit, any piece of information you want to make sure everybody knows about, or simply if they go to the website, register for the event, they could be there and enjoy some great food and wine that night. Yes, and it's very important to note that this year it's it's open for six hours. Wow. It's food, it's trade and, and you know, uh, and guests, and it's a much more limited group of people. So the tickets, usually they have somewhere between three and 5,000 people. We're not allowing more than about 1,000 to come this year. So you'll really have an opportunity to talk to the winemakers, to taste the wines with, you know, Sablonut. It's going to just really be a uh, just a whole much calmer, much more intense, uh, intense, much more fun, um, meaningful experience. Kosher Food and Wine Experience happens March 1st. It's next week at the Hilton Meadowlands in New Jersey. And again, they'll be featuring some amazing chefs, some amazing food, and obviously some incredible wine. Uh, that's the centerpiece of KFWE. That is the incredible selection of wine that you can uh, try out, learn about, and as you just heard Jay say, speak to the winemakers themselves about their wine. KFWE.com, KFWE.com for the kosher food and wine experience. All right, Jay, are we set for our guests? I'm set. All right. I'm ready to rock and roll, baby. Introduce our two special guests to this audience, please. So you you asked why they, why, how did these people win the lottery to get on? (laughs) Well, it's not really a lottery, but (laughs) I I wanted to choose um, these, what these two represent is a diversity of both humanity and wine styles and wines that are just amazing. You have Jürgen Wagner, who is not Jewish, but who has made wine for the first time. His winery has made wine for the first time for the local community in Spain, who really has a tremendous insight on his perspective on how kosher wine has affected the quality of of his wines. And and we can talk about that. And also it's Spanish wines. And then from the other, literally from the other side, you have Eti Edri, who is the an uh, international um, export director for Carmel Wines, uh, probably the oldest commercial, not probably, the oldest commercial winery in Israel with the largest, uh, you know, section of wines in, in Israel and making a largest variety of wines from Israel who can give perspective on Israeli wines, the growth of Israeli wines, the uh, evolution of Israeli wines over the last 200 years uh, from when Rothschild first started in the 1800s today. So you have this really, really wonderful kind of two perspectives, and I thought it would just be fun to hear them hear, tell, tell what the, what's going on. Well, I totally agree with you. We'll get to Etty in a couple of minutes. We're going to start with Jürgen. Uh, Jürgen Wagner uh, runs Capsanis. Am I pronouncing that per- correctly? I hope so. Uh, Jay, is that right, Capsanis? That, that is correct. It's spelled C-A-P-C-A-N-E-S, and I would assume with great, um, uh, with great uh, certainty 
that the wines will be available and um, and be displayed and be uh, sampled at the Kosher Food and Wine Experience coming up. We go all the way to Spain. Jurgen Wagner, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM. Hello, very good morning. How are you doing? Everything is wonderful and great to speak to you. Jay says that there is a uh, that there's a story, a wonderful story about uh, uh, you uh, drifting into the world of kosher wine. Can you tell us how that happened for you out in Spain? Yeah, actually, actually, it happened 25 years ago. Wow. At a moment, uh, at a quite sad moment in our company, when we depended on. Uh, poor bulk ma- uh, wine and grape sales to third companies. So we were completely dependent uh, on this uh, low margin market. And to find our spot, we listened to demand of the Jewish community uh, of Barcelona. In those days, there was no kosher wine made uh, all over Spain. And uh, the, the Jewish communities in Spain, they were forced to import wines either from Israel or from France. And you can imagine the biggest wine-growing country in the world uh, by surface, which is still nowadays Spain, uh, was not <laughs> able to deliver kosher wine to their own to their own uh, uh, communities. So in '95, the rabbi told us, um, "Let's go for kosher. The whole world is waiting. You can sell hundreds of thousands of bottles, uh, and you're going to make your 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 way, etc., etc." Um, which actually, I mean, we made our way. We never reached that numbers, but um, <laughs> actually in '95 yeah. uh, we did the first bottled kosher wine at our company. And the second vintage, the 96 vintage of Perashabib, uh, uh, got reviewed by Jose Penin, who's the most uh, influential wine guide all over Spain. It's a, it's a big, big wine book uh, to be the third highest scored wine all over Spain. Nice. So uh, the first two, they, the cost price, the, 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 the retail price at those times was at 600 and 1,000 euros per bottle. And the third was our Perashabib. <laughs> and you can imagine from one day to the other, uh, everybody wanted to know uh, what's kosher, where is Kapsanas located, and um, what's the whole story behind our wines. Very interesting. Uh, what? And, and Jay, obviously, if you have something you want to add to this, please do. What, uh, Jürgen, um, it, 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 what, give me a way to describe a Spanish wine, if, uh, if, if the real connoisseurs out there you know, feel they can uh, uh, give us the highlights of uh, French wines and California wines, etc., what would, what would be a good description or identification of a Spanish wine? Yeah. I mean, I mean, Spain is, is, is wine-wise, is quite a big country, so it pretty much depends of which region you're talking about. So we are close to Barcelona, so we are close to the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, so here uh, we have uh, two uh, major indigenous varieties, uh, which is Ganacha, Grenache, and Carignan, Carignena, and those are really unique. Those, those varietals, we plant them for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, when it comes to, to our place, uh, particularly, we only work our own vineyards. Um, and uh, thanks God, we are in the privileged situation. We have vineyards that are up to 120 years old. So we have very old vines. They produce very little fruit. But the advantage of little production is of little uh, fruit is uh, that, uh, that the berries are amazingly concentrated. Um, when it comes to Spain, uh, uh, I think, uh, of course, we, 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 we have a lot of sunshine. <laughs> That's good. But at the same time, uh, uh, you find us in the height of the mountains. So thanks to the height, we keep a beautiful freshness, a beautiful acidity. And this combination of ripeness and freshness, I mean, this, this really gives, gives some extra backbone to the wine. How many of the Capsanis uh, wines are sold in the U.S.? How many varieties do you have that make it here to this part of the world? Um, when it comes to Capsanis, uh, nowadays 20% of our wines are kosher and 80% of our wines are non-kosher. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, almost all of our wines are sold to the U.S., uh, but uh, the, the kosher family includes uh, includes seven different wines. So there's a rosé, 
there's a, a more everyday uh, red, then there's Perashabib, which is our, our most icon wine. And then we started a few years ago, we started to do a Pinot Noir, which is uh, quite unique, so it's a kosher Pinot. And then we have two very, very limited uh, editions, uh, uh, which is an old vines Garnacha and an old vines uh, Carignan. And here we pick, actually, we pick the fruit from 120 years old uh, bush wine. So this is, this is the pure essence, the pure concentration on the vines uh, brought into bottle. Jay, as I always ask you, everything that uh, Jürgen just mentioned in the kosher department is available at all the retailers in this area, right? It is available at your favorite kosher retailer or kosher-focused retail. Yeah, sure. We move on to Israel. Etty Edry is with us from Carmel and Yatir Wineries, the export manager, level 3 WSET graduate, making her very knowledgeable in the world of wine, as you would imagine. And Carmel has a rich history. That's a uh, that's an understatement, to say the least. Etty, welcome to the show. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. A pleasure to have you on the air. I mean... I don't know if there's a basic way to describe this. What Jay said earlier is obviously correct in terms of the uh, the long history of Carmel in Israel, and it seems that the brand just keeps going at a very strong pace, keeps moving forward, keeps expanding with other brands uh, that they're able to release or under under different names that um, uh, that are uh, you know essentially from the Carmel winery. How, how does that happen? How, you know, it's hard to it's hard to stay at the top of any industry. How has Carmel done it? Well, I can tell you that, uh, first of all, you have to have a great uh, partner. And, uh, of course, uh, Royal Kedem is uh, one of the, uh, if the best uh, and the top uh, partner to have. Because you do and uh, have to uh, fight your way through among a lot, of, uh, a lot of great wineries from all over the world. And, of course, to make sure you shine. And uh, Royal Kedem definitely helped us with that. Uh, promoting a wonderful sales team that goes around the whole uh, state and uh, talks about Carmel wines and its stories and have its wines being tasted among a lot of retailers. And slowly but surely, after many years of collaboration, you're able to eventually come on the shelf and become well-known. I have to say that it's not an easy task, but if you are persistent, like even in the grape growth, you know, when you grow your grapes, eventually uh, you wait four years until you harvest and then you bottle and then you age. And before, of course, you age and you bottle it. Uh, it's the same thing with uh, selling these wines. It takes a lot of uh, persistence, uh, love, care, and, of course, precision. And uh, with that, definitely our great partners uh, uh, help us achieve. How different is the Atir line from the Carmel line? Well, uh, Yatir and Carmel, uh, they're two, two different lines, even though they are the family. Uh, we are owned, uh, Yatir is owned by Carmel. And uh, it's two different um, uh, factories. Carmel is uh, uh, the largest uh, producer today, producing one million cases a year. And Yatir is a boutique winery that's located in the south of Israel. So when you talk about Carmel, you talk about a wide range of uh, grape growth uh, all over the country, from uh, the northern Galilee to the Samaria area to, to Judean Hills. And when you talk about Yatir, it's a smaller production, a boutique down in the south of Israel, which actually um, uh, discovers a different and uh, in, in, in a unique uh, area of the grape growth. Etty Edry is with us from Carmel. Uh, what is the, uh, what's the focus of Carmel Winery right now at the beginning of 2022? And have the last couple of years changed that focus because of the pandemic that I'm assuming has affected this industry like any other? Of course, the pandemic definitely has its effect, but when it comes down to excellent value for money, Carmel has been focusing in the past uh, five years on our core items, which is uh, everybody I think already is familiar with, uh, the private collection uh, wines that uh, accompanies us for the past uh, 30 years. And it's, a, uh, it's also a legendary uh, production from uh, Baron Rothschild days. It's actually profound, uh, uh, excellent, best value Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Merlot. This is where we focus our uh, uh, core items. And, uh, of course, we have selected the, and the Appalachian uh, series. Right. These are the main and core items that we really focus on 
uh, in the stores think, and their excellent value for money. Jay, go ahead. I, I think it's important to note that, you know, when you have estate-grown wines, now these are not estate-bottled because the vineyards, by law, the vineyards have to be right around the winery. But when you have Carmel, which owns the, the vineyards themselves, I mean, they manage and own their own vineyards, and they're able to control, it's rare to find these kinds of values at this kind of quality uh, with the state-grown vineyards the way Carmel has done. And, um, some, you know, Herzogs are now tr- doing that more and more in California, uh, but Carmel has been doing that. And, you know, it's like my friend Joshua Greenstein used to say, uh, would say, you know, Israel's been making wine for 2,000 years, and they just got really good at it. And Carmel, <laughs> Carmel has been making it for about 150 years. And I have to tell you, there's a really wonderful wine that they just released called the 40th anniversary uh, in honor of the 76 Cabernet. And, every you know, Israelis and, and California kosher and all of us talk about, oh, we got our wine, this kosher wine, into this non-kosher restaurant, to that non-kosher restaurant. Well, in 1980, I think it was 82, I worked for a company that sold Carmel, and it was in one of the most famous French restaurants in Manhattan with this Carmel um, 76 Cabernet. And so Carmel has been in cutting edge even in the, even in the late 70s. And now, of course, they're, re, uh, they're re, <laughs> re down, doubling down on it, so to speak, as we say these days, with cutting edge stuff at really good values. It's just wonderful when to you have see a, that. When you have a good product. Think- yeah. Go ahead, Etty. I think I'm very happy also, and uh, like Jay says, uh, it's not an easy thing to be a 140-year-old uh, factory that produces wine and uh, never misses even uh, one uh, harvest. It's uh, an achievement by itself. So uh, Carmel Winery, is, uh, it's not only representing, of course, a great uh, quality of wines, even for a wide range of prices. It's also, uh, I think, uh, uh, talking about the love uh, of Israel and also uh, the ability to continue that heritage to go on and also uh, having other wineries join to that, uh, join that story as well. No question about it. Uh, Jay, availability, I'm assuming uh, that uh, everything we've discussed in this conversation, including all the wines from Israel, are available at all the retailers in this area. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it, Carmel is one of those wines where in every, in every section, you know, from the uh, biting varietals, as we call them, to the, the more expensive 40th anniversary, as an example, um, consistency and quality uh, is pervasive throughout. No question about it. All right, everybody, there you go. Two amazing stories, two incredible brands. And two that you should keep in mind when you're at the Kosher Food and Wine Experience, you should keep these two in mind in terms of sampling and including them uh, on your uh, uh, your Shabbos holiday. And uh, I would say for some people, weekday table as well, <laughs> because there are people who have a good bottle of wine during the week as well. Jay, a final word about next week. Anything else you want to tell us regarding uh, this conversation or the upcoming KFWE? Very, very limited tickets, I suggest. If you really want to have a wonderful wine and food experience, we have Chef Gabe from Tierra Sur, uh, arguably the best kosher restaurant on planet Earth. And, and this is coming from what Nakam Siegel calls the greatest kosher wine sommelier <laughs> on planet Earth. Right. I'm not sure that's true, but, you know, I'll take it. Anyway, um, so Tierra Sur is going to be uh, – has their menu and their influence on all the food, as well as a James Beard, um, Michael Solomonov, uh, not uh, from a non-kosher restaurant. Of course, everything's going to be kosher. Is worked with uh, Michael Schick to to make some really amazing wines, Mediterranean. I'm sorry, foods Mediterranean influenced. So if you want really um, ridiculous foods, but even more amazing wines, and want to meet the amazing winemakers and these amazing chefs, sign up today because hopefully uh, you won't be able to sign up. Uh, in a day or so. KFWE.com, KFWE.com. Jurgen Wagner, the Capsanis Winery in Spain. Gracias to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Hope to see you soon. And uh, at the Edri, Carmel, Yatir, and uh, the rich history of the Carmel Winery in Israel. Todaraba, shalom, and thanks thank for you. joining us. Shalom to you too. Jay, a big thank you to you and uh, everyone out there who's going to be at KFWE, no doubt, will look you up and uh, and find you at that big event next week. 
find me. Thank I want to come and say hello to all of you. Come, sign up, and, and say hello to me when you get there. There he is, everybody. Number one kosher wine sommelier on planet Earth, Jay Booksbaum. And again, a big thank you to Jurgen Wagner, Capsanis at the Edry Carmel. And a big shout-out to all the wineries, all the brands that are going to be part of the kosher food and wine experience next week right here in the state of New Jersey. More coming up. It's Thursday. It's JM in the AM. That's my conversation with the panelists of wineries uh, that joined us with Jay Booksbaum recently. Rabbi Dove Lippman was with us uh, on a recent occasion to discuss all the regulations that will and won't be in effect starting March 1st in Israel in terms of travel to Israel. Rabbi Dove Lippman here on JM Rewind and the Nahum Siegel Network. JM in the AM Wednesday, Rabbi Dove Lippman is with us live via telephone. He's the founder of Yadla Olim, and he has been updating us regularly regarding the latest rules and regulations for tourists who want to visit Israel. And as we know, uh, now there's a specific uh, set of guidelines. March 1st, I believe uh, there'll be other sets of guidelines. Let's see if we can get this straightened out. Rabbi Dove Lippman, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM and the AM. Thank you so much, Nachum. Great to be with you. Sounds like it's busy over there. What can you tell us uh, in terms of the current status of those who want to visit Israel from the diaspora? So I'm actually uh, sticking to you from the Knesset, where there's a lot of action going on on this issue. So the much-awaited re- true reopening of Israel's borders is now scheduled for March 1st. Anyone can enter Israel vaccinated, not vaccinated, recovered, not recovered, and there's no pre-approval uh, that's necessary. We're still working on the exact details of what will be required in terms of what the testing before flights will be at the moment. It's important for everyone to know that at the moment, the rule will be that anyone who's not Israeli is going to have to take a PCR test within 72 hours of their flight to Israel. Uh, I'm involved in a little bit of a battle to try to get that to uh, apply to antigen tests uh, closer to the flight as well, because I know that'll make it a lot easier uh, for many people. And there will be some kind of entry form. We're working very hard with the health ministry to make it simple, straightforward, not complicated, so that uh, there won't be any obstacles or challenges as people try to come. What will be the procedure once someone lands in Ben Gurion Airport? So this is important, and, and, and I've, I've been very consistent from, from the last few months telling people this. Uh, Israel requires every single person who lands in Israel to take a PCR test. There are no exceptions to that whatsoever. Even someone who has recently recovered from corona uh, must take a PCR test. The quarantine time once a person comes is up to 24 hours or once you get your negative PCR test back. If a person uh, tests positive on their test when they land, uh, they will have five days, a minimum of five days of quarantine. And people have to just take that into account when they're traveling, that there is a percentage of people who do arrive here, have no symptoms, and uh, suddenly test positive, and they will have a minimum of five days. If you did recover from corona within the last 90 days, you can contact us at Yad Olim, and we'll help get you out of the quarantine if you tested positive once you arrived because the authorities understand that you tested positive because of the recent corona uh, that you had. But everyone should at least take into account the possibility that you could, again, it's less and less as time is going on and we're leaving the Omicron uh, crisis, but it, there is always a possibility that you will test positive when you arrive and then it's a minimum of five days of quarantine. So, I mean, the the it sounds like two basic differences. Number one, there'll be less paperwork likely, right? That's the first difference. And the second is that uh, usually uh, vaccine status matters, and now it seems vaccine status will not matter in the process. That's correct. At the moment, there's no distinction being made between those who are vaccinated or not. We were involved for a long time in trying to get Israel to accept recoveries from the United States and other Western countries. There was a lot, there were a lot of issues involved with that because of the potential for forged documents and uh, a lack of trust on that front. So the decision was made, given the situation worldwide and given the situation in Israel, to open the doors uh, to everyone. I also do caution everybody. Uh, the prime minister, when he made the announcement, was very clear that they'll be monitoring the situation both in Israel and abroad. And the time could come when, for some reason, they'll feel the need to close those borders 
uh, again, and that's just something that everyone should always be conscious of. Certainly check with us at yadlolim.org if you want to uh, get a sense for what the rules are at any particular time that you want to travel. But the good news is that especially now leading up to Pesach and hopefully, hopefully, potentially leading up to the summer, uh, the borders are open for anyone who wants to travel just with the testing pre-flight and, and post-flight post-flight involved. Rabbi Dov Lipman is with us. Information at Yadlo Lim, especially if you have a specific case, you can email them through the website. Um, I, I, I assume that if there's no new variant, and I know it's only February, uh, as I ask about the entire 2022, I get that it's only February. <laughs> but the way things sound right now, if let's, let's just say for argument's sake there's no new variant, nonetheless, it sounds like these rules that you just described are likely going to be in effect for quite a while. Absolutely. That's definitely the intent. That's definitely the goal. Uh, there's been a joint effort. I mean, certainly we've been very involved. I'm, I'm in the Knesset almost daily advocating and pushing and in touch with the authorities. We're very thankful to Tourism Minister Yoel Buzov, who has been very helpful. Certainly Interior Minister Yela Chaked has, has really wanted to open the doors and understands uh, what really understands uh, the challenge that has faced uh, Jews around the world who have wanted to come to Israel and have gotten so used to just coming to Israel when they wanted to, and, and then they had all these barriers. And there's definitely a desire uh, to try to keep it this way. And, and hopefully uh, this attempt will be successful and there won't be any reason uh, to have to uh, turn things back. And then the question will be, you know, at what point do they do away with the testing pre-flight and at what point do they do it away with the testing post-flight? They will take some time uh, until that happens. Uh, but I still, and I certainly understand the caution that the authorities are taking. But that's certainly the goal, and uh, we certainly hope that the momentum will keep up in this direction. All right, that's the latest. Yadlolim.org, correct? That would be the website. Absolutely, and there you can sign up also for our updates, so you don't have to scramble around. We send them right to people's emails directly, and uh, you know, the moment there's anything official of any level, whether it's opening things up or closing things back, uh, and we certainly can reach us via the website if you have any specific questions about your your particular situation. It sounds like things are getting easier, but still, people need to know what the rules are in order to be as as least frustrated as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. We always say that good to know what's going on, good to be aware, good to prepare properly. We'll help guide you through that, and then hopefully the process will be as smooth as possible. Uh, Rabbi Dov Lipman is founder of Yadlo Lim. That's the update, folks. March 1st, very significant date in terms of tourism and visiting Israel. Uh, Rabbi Lipman, I thank you very much for joining us, and have a wonderful Wednesday. Thank you so much, Nachum. You too, and to all the listeners. Dashcham to everybody in Israel. More coming up. You're listening to a Wednesday morning edition of JM in the AM. That was my conversation with Rabbi Dove Lippman. Rabbi Chaim Jackter, a book is called Bridging Traditions, Demystifying Differences Between Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews. Rabbi Chaim Jackter joined me recently to discuss the brand new book. Here he is on JM Rewind on the Nahum Siegel Network. Rabbi Chaim Jackter is with us live via telephone. The brand new book is a Magid OU Press release. It's called Bridging Traditions, Demystifying Differences Between Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews. Rabbi Chaim Jachter has earned an international reputation as a GET administrator, consultant for community Erevin, and a prolific writer. His ten books include a series of four well-received volumes entitled Gray Matter on contemporary topics in Jewish law. We've interviewed Rabbi Jachter on those. A veteran teacher of Judaic studies at Torah Academy of Bergen County. Shout out to TABC. Rabbi Jachter also serves as spiritual leader of Congregation Shari Ora, the Sephardic Congregation of Teaneck, and Dion on the Beth Din of Elizabeth. He has lectured on subjects of significance in the areas of Jewish law, thought, and studies at a wide variety of venues worldwide. Rabbi Chaim Jachter, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. So great to be here, Nachum. Are you a natural Ashkenazi or Sephardi? <laughs> from, 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 birth, from birth, what is Rabbi Chaim Jachter? <laughs> I have 0% Sephardic blood. I am a descendant of the Ramah. So that's, uh, I guess that's Hashem's sense of humor uh, when a descendant of the Ramah serves as the rabbi of a Sephardic congregation for more than 20 years. Can we start with that? Because you're not the only one. There are other, uh, let's call them crossovers in the Jewish world, where the leaders of Sephardic congregations are, in fact, Ashkenazic rabbis, or uh, rabbis of Ashkenazic background, and leaders of Ashkenazic community, uh, c- communities and congregations uh, could be led by those of Sephardic background. Is there, is this generational? Is this only now? Has this happened in Jewish history constantly? What, what can you tell us about what we think is an aberration? 
Well, the truth is it's not. You have uh, the Rush, who fled from Germany in the 14th century, and he moved to Spain, so he became a rabbi in Spain. You have the Chacham Tzvi, who also, uh, who also served uh, Spartac, an Ashkenazi service Spartac community, so it's not uh, particularly new. Uh, I love the Rush's son, the Tour. Everybody loves the Tour, but the, I have a spe- specific affinity for uh, for uh, children of, of, uh, of Ashkenazi rabbis who served Spartac communities and to see them doing so well. Interesting. So I guess we could say it doesn't matter, huh? It's all about the rabbi and the congregation. If it works, it works. That's really true, but I think it goes to something even more deep, and that is that it's it's really, it's, when you think about it, and this is after 20 years of reflection, uh, when you really, really look deep at a Sephardic congregation, uh, as an Ashkenazi that comes to a Sephardic congregation or a Sephardic Jew that comes to an Ashkenazi congregation, when you really, really think about it, is fundamentally we really are one people, and it's 95% the same. What shouldn't shock you is the differences. What should what should really shouldn't just shock you. Should find staggering is that it's it's so in common despite the fact that we were apart for so many years. We've maintained the traditions and we remain one people. Yeah, no question about that. Or by Chaim Jack, just with us live via telephone. Bridging traditions is the name of the book. Um, you know, there's. I don't know how to put this because I'm not confident that it's that it's a, a general impression. It might just be an impression that the people in my circle have always been under. Um, there, there, there always seems to be a jealousy. Maybe that's the wrong word by the Ashkenazi community of the of the what often is viewed as a higher spiritual aspect to the Sephardic community. Uh, the way they daven. Uh, more communally uh, very often, especially during the week, than Ashkenazim do. Uh, The liturgy itself, which if you analyze it, I think it would be fair to say is often more beautiful or more poetic than the Ashkenazic liturgy. I'm not trying to start a, (laughs) I'm not trying to start trouble here, but I'm just, (laughs) but but I'm just wondering if, you know, what your, what your feeling, look, you're, you're from an Ashkenazic background. Uh, Can I assume that a lot of the Sephardic traditions that now you're a part of because you're a leader of the congregation, you know, are, are tremendous positives in your religious life? I, I would say that, that we should love both, we should, we should embrace both, and to speak about one being better than the other. No, it's, it's not really better, it's just like when we're learning, we're trained, you learn Tosus, you learn the Rambam, Tosus Ashkenaz, Rambam is Sephardi, and together they make a beautiful symphony. And uh, there's, there's a tremendous, tremendous beauty, un, 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 unending beauty to, 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 the, to, to Ashkenaz and to Sephardic, and, and both are, uh, are just have have Hashem just perme, per, permeated uh, throughout both of them equally. So um, I, I should assume that there are members of the Sephardic community who have some jealousy for some of the Ashkenazic traditions as well. <laughs> well we have some Sephardim that like a filter fish. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not what I was driving at, but I hear what you're saying. All right, maybe I made too big of a deal of that, but I do think that uh, it is interesting to look at. And I know that this is not your concentration. Your concentration is more on, on traditions and, uh, and and you know the way we handle special days differently. And we'll talk about the book in a second, but... I just I think there's always been this impression that there is a um, uh, a, a more of a again I keep using the word poetic, uh, but more of a um, um, more of a poetic liturgy in the Sephardic tradition. Okay, maybe I'm making too big of a deal of this, but oh, well, let me let me actually pick up on that. I would I would say let's say with uh, Silichot, the Silichot actually are a little bit easier for uh, for Sephardim because they they use this the the poems of Rabbi Yehuda Levi. And, and others that are a little bit easier, the Hebrews a little bit easier. The uh, Ashkenazic keynote and Slichot are very much uh, influenced by Rebbe Lazar Kalir, which are a little bit more difficult to decipher. Right. And therefore, the, 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 especially let's say the Slichot, if you have any, any Ashkenazi that's attended a Sephardic Slichot, uh, you know, you, you you really can't uh, compare uh, the two. It's a it's a it's a lot easier to appreciate the uh, the Sephardic Slichot than the Ashkenazic Slichot, even though they're they are twice as long. Understood. All right, Rabbi Chaim Jackter is with us now. You 
you you go through so many topics from tefillah to uh, uh, to how we d- deal with the shul, the Beit Knesset in general. Tfilin, Birchas Kaanim, Kriyasa Torah, Bracha, Shabbos, Brit Mila, Yom Tov, Chanukah, Purim, Lagbomer, Pesach, Sukkot, Yom. I mean, it's impossible, obviously, for us, you and I, at this point, to go through this in- entire work. It is, uh, uh, it is um, uh, over. Uh, uh, where am I here? Over 450 pages of, uh, you know, analysis of all different aspects of Jewish life, both from a Sephardic and Ashkenazic um, uh, point of view. Uh, I'm assuming that was the goal of the book, right? To present as many situations in Jewish life where you can get uh, two perspectives, one from the Sephardic and one from the Ashkenazic angle. That's right. That's right. And and to uh, to be really prepared and to, uh, to, to, to have a sense of, of each situation that a person is going to find themselves, that they'll be prepared, and they'll understand, they'll be ready for some of the differences. Yeah, boy, oh boy. Uh, I'm going to ask you to help me out here. Can you give me an example? Because I don't know which to choose in order to really highlight a good topic that would, uh, you know, that would, that would um, uh, give everyone a good idea of what you've done here. Could you give me one example from the book that would be a good example? Okay, so let's use a, uh, a nice example of a holiday that's coming up. So we have Purim that's, uh, that's, or Purim that's, right. uh, that's coming up. And we, you know, we're familiar with the four sukkim that we, we like to, uh, to say out loud, and it's an old uh, practice that, uh, that all Jews do. But uh, Svaradim have an additional pasuk that they say out loud. And I remember when I heard it the first time, I was really stunned <laughs> that say out loud, Balailahu Nadadash Nasamela. Wow. That, isn't that great? Yeah. So I, I, when, I, when I heard it the first time, I was stunned. I said, whoa, that's, what a great minhag, because that, that, that's the turning point. And when I, it doesn't just mean that Achashverosh couldn't sleep. Hashem wasn't sleeping. Nadadash Nasamela. Hashem now is, uh, shifts into intervention mode, helping us. Which is uh, and, and it's just stunning that that's that that's emphasized. And and uh, in all fairness to our Ashkenazic colleagues, many people who read the Megillah do you know something different for that pasuk. They'll be do something different for that passage just to emphasize the drama, to emphasize how in fact this is a turning point. But as you said, the Sephardic community literally says it out loud, recognizing that this is where things change for the Jews. It, it, it's beautiful. I also tell you my first Purim that I was at. Share Ora, and I and and uh, I, I I became so excited when uh, in the morning when we read the when we read the Megillah we did not say Shachiano. This is the Rambam. I became so excited. I it literally chills went down my spine because I'd been learning and at TABC it was teaching uh, so many times the Machlokas Shintos and the Rambam the Lundus behind the understanding the the the, the philosophy behind the Tosus that say you do make a bracha Ashkenazic uh, tradition you make a Shachiano again on in the morning, and the, and the Ramah says no, and the Machaber and the Ramah, and as I, I knew this is a Sardic and Ashkenazi tradition. I knew, we, we all, you know, we, anyone who went to Yeshua learn, learns this. But when you actually see it, shivers went down my spine. I said, whoa, this is, this is the Rambam, the Machaber, the Maran. You know, it, it, it's not the right. piece. It's, it's, not, it, it's something that's alive. It's it, it just unbelievable to see that which you just learn about in yesh, in yeshiva. It, it just it, it comes alive. It, 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 I was just I was just stunned by that. By, I was utterly stunned by that. By the way, are are there a lot of? Uh, I mean, I, I guess we could say there are in the Ashkenazic background, but. In the Sephardic background, are there a lot of different uh, options, meaning that, you know, we use the term Sephardic in a, in a very general sense, especially those of us who are outside of the Sephardic community, but are there a lot of differences within the Sephardic community? Some from certain countries will, in fact, you know, have a minig, and those from other countries will have a different minig? Yeah, that's uh, that's an important point, Nachum. You really you really bring up a very very important point. Ashkenazim, uh, certainly at this point, there are pretty much uh, very few differences between the Ashkenazic groups. It really doesn't make so much of a difference if you're from Poland or from Hungary or from Russia. Yeah, we know the German Jews have a little bit uh, different. The waiting the three hours, waiting the six hours. Well, one second. You- this Shabbos, this Shabbos is a good example. Some Ashkenaz- <laughs> some Ashkenazim will say Otros, others will not. Okay. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, but 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 pretty much, I right. would say ninety nine percent amongst Ashkenazim, it, it, it's it's pretty it's pretty uniform. Right. However, however, amongst Sephardim, it's really dramatic, and it's not surprising when you think about it. Poland and Hungary are really not that far apart. 
However, when you think about Morocco and you think Iran and Persia, you're talking about thousands of miles. Right. That's uh, that's that's quite a uh, that's quite a difference. Uh, so uh, we we try to also enhance understanding of the different subgroups within the Sfaradim to understand with with Moroccan uh, where they come from, Yemenites. Uh, to, uh, to to try to understand where where they're about, and then people on the border, uh, let's say Algerian Jews. Well, where do they fit in? Do they fit in? Are they more like the the general practices of, uh, of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, and its neighboring countries? Are they more like Morocco? So they're sort of like border uh, border countries, border practices. It's just unending fascination. I will tell you how something, Nachum. I, I will tell you. Twenty years, I'm the rabbi at Sharei Orah. Every single time that I walk in there, every single time I walk in there, uh, I, I learn something new. <laughs> I learn something new. I can it's imagine. unbelievable because we have so many different groups there, so many different groups of Sfaradim. There's something to learn every single time that, that, that you're there. Is it's the, unbelievable. Is the, um, is the soft matzah a good example? Some Sfaradim will use soft matzah. Others will use matzah much more similar to the Ashkenazim. I think that's pretty well accepted throughout the this, this Sephardic world to use the uh, the, the soft uh, the soft matzah. Really? Uh, the Yemenites have uh, Yemenite Jews, and that's uh, Yemenite Jews. That's, that's that's a rich, rich, rich area. We try to spend a lot of time about that. That is so fascinating. You can, meet, you can visit a Yemenite congregation. Not too many in this country, right. but so 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 amazing, so attractive to uh, to understand what that's all about and understand their tradition. Uh, Yemenite love the soft matzah very, very much, but uh, it's it, it's something that's uh, amongst Sfaradim, it's, uh, it's it's well accepted, but what's an interesting debate is amongst the currently in the, in the Ashkenazi community, well, is it acceptable to Ashkenazim to, to use the uh, Sephardic uh, soft matzah if it's made in a way that's truly done properly, that it shouldn't have to worry about uh, chametz. Can a, uh, with, with kidney oat in mind, which is one of our favorite topics, can Sephardic Jews host Ashkenazim on Pesach? Uh, so that's always a big issue, and that's uh, that's uh, that, that's a challenge. And they're uh, they're different opinions, and we try to present the different opinions. And it's beautiful to see how Ravaggio says in his and it's sucking. He really tries to make him make him work out as much as he can, and to of course a limit uh, that uh, Ashkenazim can host can host Sfaradim, even though Sfaradim are strict, let's say with 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 glad kosher uh, and uh, with, with the standards of halak. And it, and he also uh, makes sure that Ashkenazim should be able to be able to be comfortable starting and regarding uh, regarding kitniot. So it's beautiful to see that we're Amechad, we really want people. And uh, but there's there's a there's there are a lot of different opinions, and we really we try to be fair and to present a full range of opinions. Uh, whose minig is it to say Hallel in Shul on the first night of Pesach? Is that a Sephardic or Ashkenazic one? Oh, that's a nice one. That's that's really a nice one. That started out Sephardic. Uh, however, it uh, slowly uh, is, is becoming imported into many Ashkenazic congregations between Hasidim, and Hasidim have a lot in common with Sephardim, the love and the embrace of Kabbalah to to a certain extent within within our practices, the Vilna Gon and those who are following the Vilna Gon's practices. So that has a huge impact in Israel. You have uh, Ashkenazic Jews who are following Rav Soloveitchik or Talmidim of Rav Soloveitchik. Uh, so many of the rabbis in America are uh, Talmidim or Talmidim Talmidim students of students of uh, of Rabbi Soloveitchik or students, and therefore their impact. Rabbi Soloveitchik would follow very often the Vilna Gaon's practices. So it's just very interesting to see how uh, sometimes there's uh, there's flexibility and there's change, slight change over time in our practices. Do Sephardim eat in the Sukkah Shmini Atzeres? Absolutely, they do. Absolutely. They do. Interesting. Absolutely do. Absolutely do. So that minig of not eating in the Sukkot Shemini is literally just a Hasidic background minig. It's not... Uh... And that, that's Hasidic. You know, I remember I, my first Shemini Atzeret that I was at, at our shul, I was, I was shocked. I, I said, we are the Hakafos. You know, right. Hasidim are so uh, into the Hakafos right. on the night of Shemini Atzeret. Right. I, I was shocked. I was, I was expecting they were going to be Hakafos at the uh, Sfaradim as well on Shemini Atzeret. But that's also one of the differences between Hasidim and, and Sfaradim. Uh, they're not always the same. Uh, Kagavna, the, from the Zohar, that, Has, that Hasidim say, no such Sfarad has on Friday night. You would think that Sfaradic Jews do that. No, they say, Bamed Manlikim. Very interesting. Very, very. Interesting. very interesting.
and there's I mean, there's so much here. I mean, everybody, you got to get the book. There's, we're just you know, it's the tip of the iceberg, and obviously, there's so many topics. Um, but on the mezuzah thing, I never even considered if you have a, if you have roommates who are uh, one Svardic and one Ashkenazic, the, that mezuzah is only going to appeal to one one of their customs, right? Well, it depends which Svardic it is. The Moroccan Jews are similar to the Ashkenazim and keep it and keep it on a slant. You always have to be aware who's uh, from the different groups what right. Svardim what they do. I know at TABC we have a Svardic uh, minyan, and and I and I and I help out very often. We have another uh, Svardic rabbi at TABC as well, uh, Rabbi Kasus. And uh, so between the two of us, over the years we've been uh, we've been helping out. So when it comes to Rosh Chodesh, and should, should we say Hallel with the bracha? Do we not say Hallel with the bracha? So now I go around the room and I know, well, this student is Yemenite, this student is is, is from uh, his ancestors, his grandparents are from Tunisia, this one is this one's Moroccan, this one's Syrian, this one's Lebanese. You're breaking <laughs> right, each one individual. You're, you're breaking say, this is what you do, this is what you do, this is what you do. I have to have specialized uh, specialized instruction for each ABC starting student. You're breaking up, Rabbi Jack. You're breaking up. We need you to <laughs> we need you to get better service there. Are you there? Oh yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're breaking up, unfortunately. Um, the uh, and and on the Log Bomer issue, the, the Sephardic community will not take a haircut on Log Bomer itself, right? Sephardim will will do uh, Log Bomer. They'll wait right. one more day. Ah, there's so much. One more day. Rabbi Jackter does uh, does touch on Yom Atzmaut. He does touch on uh, so many different minhagim that are. Uh, uh, that are a part of the Ashkenazic slash Sephardic community and its differences. Uh, Shabbos, Yom Tov, Brismila, and so, Brachot, and so many more uh, that we haven't even touched on yet this morning. It is a Magid OU Press release. It's called Bridging Traditions, Demystifying Differences Between Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews, Rabbi Chaim Jackter. And uh, we are highly recommending it. I assume, uh, Rabbi Jackter, that... Uh, uh, this is available everywhere, certainly the Koran website, and if anybody just searches Bridging Traditions, they'll be able to find it, right? Sure, I'm sure, and the OU Press as well. Right, OU has that OU Press, and it is quite an amazing work. Uh, you've, uh, you know, you, you wrote Demystifying Differences Between Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews. I was wondering when they became mystifying. When, <laughs> when, when did we conclude that our differences between our brothers in our worldwide community are, in fact, mystifying? <laughs> I like that, because a lot of Sometimes you know I, I, I'm consulted by parents whose whose uh, daughter, their son, is going to marry, or their their nephew, their niece, marrying a Sephardic Jew, and they're going to be going to a Sephardic shul. They're going to be hosting their 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 in-law child, and they're at a loss. They're they 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 don't they it's like a, it's a mystery. How how are we going how are we going to handle this? And then I give them the book, and then oh now we know how to handle situations. We know what food to serve. We know we know what to expect. At the tefillah, at the davening, and uh, it's just to empower people. They should don't don't worry about it. It's ninety five percent of the same. Just uh, there there are differences. Be aware and and embrace it. It's one 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 tip I will give sure. uh, to uh, to Nachum to your listeners is that if they uh, go to a Sephardic congregation, you Ashkenazi go to a Sephardic congregation, a Sephardi that goes to an Ashkenazi congregation, use a local sitter. Use right. a local sitter if you're going to use. Uh, let's say you're an Ashkenazi, goes to a Sephardic congregation, and you use an Ashkenazic sidur, uh, that's kind of like trying to find your way in Manhattan with a map of Chicago. <laughs> so, uh, Understood. Has your family taken on any specific Sephardic dish that you've fallen in love with? Oh, that. <laughs> yeah, we like a lot of the Sephardic dishes. Yeah, that, that's for sure. Yeah, the, the Sephardic dishes are uh, amazing. Bridging traditions, demystifying differences between Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews. It's brand new from Magid. It's brand new from OU Press. It's Rabbi Chaim Jackter. A pleasure uh, to speak to you this morning. Congratulations, Mazal Tov, on, and Mabruk. Mabruk and Mazal Tov on the book. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Nachum. Thank you, Nachum. And also, shout out to you to all your boys. You have great, great students at TABC. Your boys, they are fantastic. Much appreciated. A big shout out to everybody at TABC, and I thank you for that. So we had a couple of recommendations. With what song should we wrap up a Sephardic Ashkenazi con- uh, conversation? We figured we'd go with this one at JM in the AM.
That was my conversation with Rabbi Chaim Jackter. Thanks so much for tuning in. Plenty more coming up right here on the Nahum Siegel Network.